You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. My name is Tim Coe and today my returning guest on the show is Dr Paul Effler. Welcome back, Paul. Thanks for having me. Gee, it's great to have you back here, Paul. What's been keeping you busy? Oh, I guess we've been planning a number of things, uh, preparing for influenza season and also a uh, meningococcal W vaccination campaign we will start uh, in term two of schools this year in WA. And look, they're the topics we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about Zoster if we get a chance as well. Um, but let's go flu first. Uh, we're expecting that the 2017 uh, immunisation to come in stock pretty soon. Um, what can you tell us about the upcoming 2017 uh, vaccine in the season? Okay, so we're expecting the vaccine to arrive, as you mentioned, in April. And that's a little bit later than we've seen in some years, although last year was about this time. And, uh, and what we saw last year is doctors were able to get the patients through their vaccinations prior to influenza season really taking off. And, and that's important because there's new recent research emerging. Most The most recent publication is in December of 2016. Over four influenza seasons in a, in a large group of practices in the United States that shows that the protection that the vaccine provides wanes over the course of three to four months dropping off maybe six to 11% as each month progresses. So that's caused the change in thinking here in Australia is that really uh, to f- uh, give people the most protection, we should be trying to vaccinate them closer to the beginning of flu season so we cover them during the months of peak transmission. So that's really interesting, isn't it? Because you're quite right. I mean, traditionally in general practice, we'd often get it in, say, February and try and push on and, and get as many people covered. But there's a sweet spot of, of when you should immunise, basically. Yeah, absolutely. It, your listeners won't be able to see this graph, but I'll show that to you, Tim. This graph's the peak of influenza season in WA over the last four seasons. And if we, if we put a four-month band on that, we can see that if we vaccinate in May and early June, we'll be well-positioned to catch the beginning of flu season and actually have four months through the peak. So we're sort of adjusting our message now to say it's not necessarily best to go in early. It's better to do it just before flu season starts so you got protection throughout the season. Right. Now there are a couple of exceptions to that. If you were a traveler going to parts of the world or maybe even the northern part of Australia where flu season tends to come earlier, you might want to go and get vaccinated early on. Also if you're a pregnant woman and you were going to deliver before that, well you want to get vaccinated at least a couple weeks before you deliver so you have time to move those antibodies to the fetus through the placenta and protect that baby during the peak of flu season. Right, okay, that's great. Gee, that's really interesting and, and certainly new information for me, Paul. Um, so 2017, is there a reconstitution and a, a remixing to match the seasonal demands? Or Sure, so we have uh, quadrivalent vaccines again, which cover against the four strains, and there's been just one strain change from uh, the last year's formulation. There's a new uh, Michigan strain, H1N1 Michigan strain that's been put in, because we think that's a closer match to the, the antigenic characteristics of the H1N1 virus that's going to circulate this coming season in Australia. And that's probably a prelude to my next question. What What's uh, the Northern Hemisphere looked like in, in the last few months? Has it been... So I guess the good news is that uh, both the United States and the UK have had relatively modest influenza season. The bad news is 
that as they used to say at CDC where I used to work in Atlanta, you've seen one flu season, you've seen one flu season. So I don't think we can take any, uh, any uh, real uh, guidance from the fact their season was like because we may be the one that le uh, leads off with a heavy season. In fact, if people just go back a few years, um, it's the Southern Hemisphere that led the 2009 pandemic. Uh, really with it emerging in, in sort of April and then peaking in our winter. So it, it, it's nice to hear they had a light flu season or moderate, modest flu season, but I wouldn't rely on that happening here necessarily. That's the way to be a pessimist, <laughs> Paul. Yeah. Um, look, here's an interesting one. You know, we're, we're say 10 years into childhood immunization for flu in WA now. Um, has it been a success or, you know, where are we at? Uh, it hasn't been the success it should have. Now, everyone that's hearing this can tell I have an American accent, and I practiced many years in the, in the United States, where we've been vaccinating young children, children six months through uh, five years of age, for a decade or more. And uptake rates there are somewhere on the order of 40, 50% of children. So we know it does, that it, uh, that it is safe to use a vaccine uh, under, under the vast majority of circumstances. We also know kids under five have the highest attack rates and the highest hospitalization rates. So we really should be focusing on those children here in Australia. Unfortunately, the the uh, you know the freak events really of 2010, where uh, the one product had an issue with manufacturing, I think has undermined both parental confidence, but I think even more among doctors, because patients generally. Uh, you know, we'll do what the doctor suggests is in the best interest of their child, but I think we've lost GP confidence in childhood flu vaccinations, and we've been working hard to rebuild it, but it's a challenge. So you're now speaking to lots of doctors on, on the podcast. What's your message to them about the, the safety? My message would be to look at the data, look at the use, and see how uh, safe the vaccine is. Uh, generally. What happened in 2010 was one brand which had a problem in their manufacturing that year and that, that should not be what we assume is the standard for all flu vaccines. And secondly, I would say look at the data from Australia that shows hospitalization rates for flu. It's available online in the immunization handbook and you'll see that those kids under five are, are getting high, the highest attack rates up to people 80 years old and the highest hospitalization rates and we can do more to protect them. They've had almost 50 deaths this past year in kids under five in the United States. That would translate to at least a couple that we would expect to occur here. And that's absolutely unnecessary. Yeah, it's interesting. I find the psychology of this quite interesting, Paul, because, you know, GPs have accepted um, flu immunization in pregnancy really readily and happily, despite the fact that we were in a bit of uncharted territory to start with. We didn't have a lot of good safety data um, yet we can't move past this point with the childhood immunization series. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, and I, and I think it's because historically we've always said that uh, influencing kids isn't serious, and that sort of is not what the data is showing us now. And also I think this adverse event has had a profound impact. The parents have, it, from, you know, that's a 2000 and and uh, 10, that's seven years ago. Many of those families have moved on and the families that are having young kids now weren't actually involved or aware of that much about this, but it's the doctors that are still there, the yeah. GPs that are still there, and they're, they're, I think, got a missed message saying that flu vaccines in children was a danger, not this one brand this one year was a problem, and we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Yeah, that's a great message, Paul, and certainly something for our listeners to think about. Um, look, let's talk about meningococcal ACYW. Um, WASB was the first state to roll out an ACYW uh, plan, and it's been sort of copied across a few different states now. 
Let's talk about the reasoning and, 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 and how and why it's happened. Well, across Australia and including WA, we've seen a rather dramatic increase in the number of cases of invasive meningococcal disease due to W. Um, we've seen a tripling here in WA, and I think that's also been replicated in New South Wales and, and, and Victoria. That in and of itself is concerning, but if you look at the United Kingdom, you see that they've had this kind of increase before us, and it, it sustained levels ha have occurred to the point where they've had to uh, launch into vaccination programs to try and uh, control it. We're fortunate that we have an effective vaccine uh, against the W strain, and we decided that, uh, you know, based on some guidance that was given from Atagi, expressing concerns about where this might be headed, to go early to try and prevent us from following the, the path that the UK and, and even Chile has gone down. Mm. Yep, and uh, in terms of the immunisation itself, that's set to roll out really over the course of this year now. So we're, we're seeing our first... Yeah, absolutely. So we, we looked at some guidance that Atagi had prepared, and they, they felt the most effective strategy was to go for 15 to 19-year-olds yep. uh, in the vaccination program. And some people, that might be counterintuitive. They say, well, you know, young babies get it, and, and that is true. But actually, adolescents... Uh, not only get uh, invasive disease, they're also the major source of transmission. They have high carriage rates and, and they spread it to other age groups in the community. So Tagi's advice was to go for them to go for herd immunity and that's where we're starting at least with doing a campaign there. Now when you go for that age group, the logical thing is to do a school-based program. Australia has demonstrated better than probably any country in the world that you can do HPV vaccinations to a great degree in schools and get really high rates, which uh, other places uh, that don't do school-based uh, programs haven't been able to achieve. So in WA, we're going to do a school-based program starting in term two when we can get the vaccine in, and then with most of the vaccinations happening in, uh, in term three. We're also going to have outside clinics, at public uh, community centers and uh, public health uh, units and other places to try and catch up to 18 to 19 year olds that won't be in school. Now, I think the question you're probably going to ask is where are GPs? What's their role? Mm -hmm. Well, we recognize GPs have a critical role in playing getting people vaccinated, including this age group. So once we can guarantee supply of the vaccine, enough to, to support our school-based program where we think the majority is going to happen, we want to bring GPs into this uh, to pick up the students that didn't get it at school and 18 to 19-year-olds that won't be, won't be attending school at this time. So it's sort of a staged approach. And look, it, I mean, I would congratulate you because it's a very targeted approach to really trying to hit a specific group where you, you're, you're going to do the most good, basically. And I think most people would recognise that as, as good health policy, basically. And, and down the line, we may see a, a situation where, as a country, we, instead of giving the combined Hib-Men-C vaccine, maybe there will be a role for the, uh, the men ACWI vaccine to, to come in there and actually provide protection to younger children as well. So maybe a two-pronged approach, but for our first effort, we're really going to go for hitting this cohort and try and do a really good job and get some, get some herd immunity going. And look, just on the topic of meningococcal disease, it raises an interesting question. We see variations in strains across the states. It seems this W has spiked across all states, basically. But um, traditionally, we'd see different rates of B and C in different states. What, what's sort of the, the natural sort of... Um, sort of prevalence of, of different strains, do you, do you know much across Australia? Well, what sets this W apart, it, it, it has a complex of genes that make it particularly virulent. 
And whether that's related just to how it uh, attacks a body or its ability to be transmitted, it, it has a, a cluster of genes that is really bad news. And, and we know that from, from uh, what it's done in other places. So I think that's what's setting it apart from the, the other C's and B's that we we've always have going on in the community, is this seems to be a little bit of a different actor, and that's why we're, we're obviously considering this uh, potential emergency. And you mentioned before uh, the, the much higher risk for Aboriginal patients as well. That, that, that particularly yeah, so, so here in WA we have had a, a cluster of overrepresented, uh, uh, over, uh, Aboriginal persons are overrepresented among our cases. And, and we do believe that they, they are at special risk. So when we roll this out, we really want to do everything we can to make sure we uh, provide uh, you know, appropriate coverage and access to the vaccine to protect that vulnerable population. Great, Paul. Um, whilst we're on the topic of meningococcal immunisations, one that just keeps coming up for our, our GPs out there is uh, whether there's going to be any sort of foreseeable funding of the meningococcal B immunisation and you know, where we're at with the evidence. Sure. I, I can't speak for the national government about their funding decisions, but I can say that um, what we've seen in WA with B is almost record low levels. Yeah. Uh, there have been a few tragic cases, uh, you know, that have occurred, and I'm not minimizing uh, how serious those are and how devastating they are, but the numbers of B have just uh, really gone down. To, and, and when you compare that to W, which looks like it's uh, ascending, when we look at what we need to do for meningococcal disease, at least in the first instance, it's, it's go for W. Yeah. And then I think there'll be time to consider, can we bring B in, can we afford B, um, and how would we integrate it into the schedule? So would your advice be for, say, that parent that's considering the B actually think more about the W for your baby, if you, if you are of that mind where you, you're proactively immunising? Well, absolutely. I guess as a parent, I haven't thought of that question before. But if I were a parent and I had to, and I was going to pick one, you know, you know, a single or two doses of the quadrivalent, which covers W, that seems to be the greater risk. Yeah. Um, you know, it's hard to predict in medicine these rare things. Meningococcal diseases, you know, is a little bit like lightning striking. Yeah. So many of us carry it in the back of our throats. Maybe ten percent of adolescents do, and then only a few get sick. So it's really hard to say with any certainty. Uh, what the trends will be, but we do we do see W ascending, yeah. and we have a vaccine available for it. So I would think that would probably take priority in my mind at this time. It's certainly something to think about. And we're not writing guidelines here. We're just sort of talking about what what the numbers are and what the risk is. Look. Um, We've got a bit of time, so let's talk about Zoster. We've seen some serious reactions. We've seen a fatality from Zoster uh, immunisation recently. Um, so we should probably remind people to think about the contraindications to Zostavax. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as you mentioned, there's been a, a tragic death of somebody that received the Zostervax that uh, probably shouldn't have because they had contraindications, and ultimately uh, it led to complications and to their demise. So that is a, t a timely reminder, a, a very important reminder for all GPs to make sure they are, are fresh with the contraindications to Zostervax vaccine. And essentially, it's immunocompromise because this is a live virus vaccine. It's a, you know, it's a high titer and someone that is, uh, uh, you know, appreciably immune compromised can actually develop 
disseminated zoster is a complication. And, and some of those uh, things that would make immune compromise would be, you know, uh, hematological cancers, uh, solid organ transplants with your um, immunosuppression, uh, HIV AIDS, which obviously attacks the immune system, and high-dose immunosuppressive therapies. It gets complicated on what cons what's really high-dose and whether somebody's immunocompromised, so probably it's appropriate if you're think as a GP, if you're thinking this person might be significantly immunocompromised to seek some expert advice. Yeah, look, I think I posed some, some of those questions to you last episode. It, it does get tricky with, you know, I'm, I'm thinking particularly the rheumatoid patients who are on a, a bit of, you know, often a, on an immunosuppressant or a, a modest dose of steroids, what do you do with them? And I think you, your advice is just play it safe, basically. Yeah, so the the Commonwealth has put together some, some guidance with some of these uh, uh, medicines and and what's accepted and if there's a contraindication or not. But again, I just think if you're unsure about this particular patient, uh, it's worth the time and effort to get a consult and just be sure. Thanks, Paul. Look, um, that's great information about Zoster. Oh, actually, tell us about the, the uptake of Zoster. Is it, is it being, has it been a success, do you think? Uh, I think it has been. So far in WA, we shipped out 73,000 doses. And if all of those were into patients in this cohort, that would be about 43% of the patients vaccinated already. And we're moving about 1,500 doses a week, and that's four times what we would expect just from people turning 70, growing into the cohort. So we think uptake has been good, and it's still continuing, because our, our uh, distribution is solid. Now, we don't have actual coverage figures in this group yet, but we have put a question into the behavioral survey that will happen at the end of the year, which we'll be asking people and get some data. And then also as air matures, you know, that's the new whole of life register, these doses should be going into that. We'll be able to get some real doses in and uh, patients figures for you. Look, that's great. So we're, we're seeing good uptake, well, signs of good uptake, and uh, yeah, it's a success. Yeah, I do think it's a success story. Again, this is, has been a tragic development with this uh, episode, but uh, it made me it made me go to the U.S. data that's available online, and they've been using this vaccine for uh, at least since 2007 in a big way. And, uh, you know, to my knowledge, they've only had one death as a complication, and I can tell you there's been the same number of proportion of misadministrations into immunocompromised patients in that environment too. So I have to think that th this is pr a pretty safe vaccine. We just need to pay attention to the contraindications. Yeah, so be mindful. Yeah. Paul, that's um, been a great episode. Uh, thank you for your time and we'll look forward to next week where we're going to talk about uh, immunisation and refusal. So thanks for your time. All right, thanks for having me. We really appreciate GP support for immunizations. Thanks, Paul. 